Ron Hall is an author, and he was portrayed by Greg Kinnear in the same kind of different as me. Check this out. Nobody can help everybody, but everybody can help somebody. Think that through, girls. I want to make sure our interns are listening to this one. Nobody can help everybody, but everybody can help somebody. No, 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 no. Sounds like a blues song. <laughs> words of wisdom from a homeless drifter. Words that uh, never would be shared with the world if not for a wayward husband, a forgiving wife, and an unforgettable true story that brought the three of them together. With more money than they could ever possibly need, Ron and Debbie Hall have everything they could want except for a loving marriage. When Ron's unfaithfulness is brought to light, Debbie invites him to stay, which is a miracle right there, as long as he remains truthful and does what she asks of him. But when her request includes serving the homeless in an inner city rescue mission, Ron would prefer to write a large check instead. Amen, brother. <laughs> Guided by her faith and spurred on by the dream of a homeless man she senses will change their city, Debbie befriends a disenfranchised man named Denver. Denver. More surprisingly, uh, so does Ron. That's just weird. Czech guy becomes friends with homeless guy. I said that. That wasn't in the no, bio. That was wonderful bio. That. Excellent. Yeah, like Excellent. how I did yeah. that. Despite, Friend guy, check guy. <laughs> despite vast, <laughs> vast differences, their lives uh, begin to intersect, and they all are changed forever. Based on an unforgettable true story, forgiveness, friendship, family, and faith, same kind or different as me, opened in theaters October 20th with two Academy Award winners and two nominees. The film's outstanding cast brings to life the New York Times bestseller, that interweaves stories of international art dealer Ron Hall, played by Greg Kinnear, his grace-giving wife, Debbie Renee Zellweger, Zellweger, didn't say that one right, uh, and their unexpected friend, Denver, whose name is... Jimon Honchu. I really hope you're pronouncing that right. And, of course, Ron's estranged father, Earl, played by John Voigt, Mr. Deer Hunter himself. Same kind of different as me, movie.com. Same kind of different as me, movie.com. And joining us right now is the uh, guy with the checks, Ron Hall. Ron, how you doing, man? <laughs> well, I wish I still had the checks, but uh, working for the homeless for the last uh, 19 years, uh, I have become closer, much closer to them than I ever was uh, as, a, as a check writer. But uh, God has really blessed me with a great story to tell, and, uh, and I'm here to tell it today. Good. Well, I'm glad you started that off that way, because I saved a kind of a... Mm, an edgy question for the end of the interview, in case you, you know, I asked it and you got bugged with me and then hung up, because that's never happened on a radio show. Um, so here's what I was going to ask you, Ron. From what I understand or understood, you're still a very wealthy man, but how many more could you help if you lived with less? And I, this is a, a conundrum in my brain and has been for years, because I think of that final scene in Schindler's List when, uh, when uh, what's the guy, actor that played him? Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is looking at his gold ring in his hand, and he starts weeping, and he sort of says, you know, I could have saved three more lives if I just sold this ring. Did you ever have that sort of conflict stirring around in your soul, Ron? Oh, I sure did. After my friend Denver and I became best friends, and after, uh, this is a spoiler alert, uh, you know, he told me that... Uh, uh, what my wife was doing, my late wife was doing for the homeless, she had become precious to God. He said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside. Something bad's getting ready to happen to her. Well, um, you know, I spent everything I could to save her from her cancer. And then, you know, what 
we, what we had left uh, in the end, we wrote this book and we gave that money away to the homeless to build a homeless mission in her honor because this is her passion to, to serve and to change lives on the streets. She we wanted to be the feet and hands of Jesus without ever having to mention his name that anyone could figure out just by her actions. Nice. Nice. I like that a lot, actually. Uh, obviously, uh, Debbie and I have never spoken. I don't know anything about your wife, Debbie. I know she passed in November of 2000. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, That's correct. I, I want to know more about her. Tell me about your wife. If I walked into the soup kitchen or whatever, you know, thing, if I walked in there and I met your wife, Debbie, what would I be, what impression would I be left with? Well, the first thing is that she wanted to know everyone's name. She wanted to know one thing specifically that, uh, that she could pray for for that person every day. And uh, and then she and sat down and would have personal conversations with the homeless. And we were serving, you know, three to five hundred homeless a day. And she got to know uh, all of their names. She got to know their needs. And her prayer list was so long, it took really about half a day to go through her prayer list that she went through every day on a daily basis. So um, she used to say, like Mother Teresa, you know, it's very fashionable for people to sit around and talk about the poor and the homeless, but unfortunately it's not fashionable to sit down and have a conversation with them. No. And so at, at her insistence, uh, she she dragged me along into this program, and, and actually the first day I was sitting with this, uh, she had a dream of a, of a, of a homeless man who was uh, poor but wise, and by his wisdom our city and our lives would be changed. And the morning after her dream, she said it was just like uh, the verse of Ecclesiastes 9.15 where Solomon wrote, it was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise, and by his wisdom our city was changed. And uh, that's that's how we began this adventure into finding this man of her dreams. But when we eventually became friends, and that's uh, we tell in our book, same kind of difference as me. It's a it's it's a roller coaster ride uh, of intrigue and mystery on how we all became friends. But uh, when we first became friends, and and I decided to sit down at her insistence on the curb uh, by the dumpster where where my friend lived in the inner city of Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm sitting there one day, and um, and he said he asked me if I was a Christian, and I said yes, I am. Why do you think I'm down here? Uh, you know, helping. And he said, you're not helping anybody, except the only person you're helping is you're helping yourself feel better about yourself, because you ain't never done nothing to nobody but yourself, and now you try to feel better about that. So you down here putting some food on a plate, you think that's going to change your life? He said, you know, we're capable of serving ourselves. That all you're doing when you put food on a plate is look at a person in the eyes, tell them that acknowledging that I see you and you're not invisible, because most people just want us to be invisible. Hmm. He said, but he said, but that ain't what I wanted to talk to you about. He said, I want to know why all you Christians worship one homeless man on Sunday and turn your back on the first one you see on Monday. Snap. Ouch. I just said snap. I should oh. never say that. Uh, that's a great line. That is such a powerful line. Now, he also, uh, if I got this right, Denver... Tell me about this catch and release stuff, because Denver didn't want you to do that with him. Catch and release. Is it true that white people, when they go fishing, catch and release? Because with my people, we, you know, we bring the fish home and feed the family. And you guys catch <laughs> and release, and I think you're doing that with me. Is Did I say that right? Well, you've got it pretty close to the truth there. His <laughs> exact words that uh, 
you know, he said it was something before when I asked him if he would be my friend, he looked at me with this incredulous look. He couldn't believe that I wanted to be his friend. You know, I was a, I was a wealthy man down there serving and, and keeping on a promise uh, that, that I would do anything that my wife asked me to do after she showed me Christ-like forgiveness for, for having an affair. And, uh, so anyway, that's, uh, he, he said he would have to think about being my friend, and I was so arrogant, I thought, why would this crazy man uh, want to think about being my friend? I've never asked anybody to be my friend before, and it just always happens naturally. But to him, friendship was much different. To him, friendship was something that you, you lay down, uh, are willing to lay down your life for that friend, and so he didn't have any friends because he had not been willing to do that. So... Uh, so he asked me, uh, when he asked me if I'd be his friend, he wanted to think about it. Uh, you know, it was a couple of weeks later that I saw him taking trash out of his dumpster, and I said, uh, hey, you want to go get some coffee? So we're sitting there having coffee, and he said, hey, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? And he said, well, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, oh, yeah, well, what do you think about that? And he said, well, there's something that's got, that uh, bothers me about white folks, and it's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, Denver, you know, I, I'm not a fisherman. You know, I'm an art dealer, and I have a ranch, so, but I don't, I know about those things, but I don't even have a rod and reel or a tackle box. And he said, but I bet you can answer the question. And so uh, he said, when I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. And I said, well, I started laughing. I said, well, Denver, of course they do. It's a sport. You don't get it? And he said, no, sir, I don't get that. Because back on the plantation where I grew up in Louisiana, we'd go out in the morning, dig us some worms, cut us a cane pole, and sit on the riverbank. When we finally got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught. And so it occurred to me, he said, then we'd take it back and share it with all the folk on the plantation. And he said, so it occurred to me, if you're just a white man that's fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, they ain't got no desire to be your friend. And if I ever heard from God in my life, it was at that moment. He said, take a chance. Take a chance. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was that was uh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, so incredible. It incredible. My best friend, yeah. So we're on the phone with Greg Kinnear, sort of. Uh, Ron Hall. <laughs> and, yes. And Ron. I, I like that. Ron, um, I want to talk about romanticizing the homeless, because I think there's a bit of a... Um, feel-good scenario that happens when these kind of movies come out and, you know, you see an actor portraying homeless and then they, everybody becomes pals and it's all sort of normalized and cleaned up and sterilized. But this is going to sound awfully callous, but please walk me through this and help our listeners understand. Well, help me understand. I don't care about our listeners. I need help understanding this. The homeless people that I've hung out with, they smell brutally. They have some kind of skin disease and most of them that I've hung out with have like some, well, either sociological unawareness or full-on mental illness. So this ain't no cakewalk. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So, I agree. So okay. Well, then now now we got the now we got the nineteen years working with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So now we got this whole you know kumbaya you know if you're a follower of Jesus thing, invite them into your house and give them a bedroom and let them into your family and you know bring them in and you know we don't want to have them staying out in the cold and freezing to death. So bring them in and that's what Jesus would do. And then I'm thinking, oh. Do I, what I've seen and heard from those who work with the homeless is we go, hey, you know, we're going to get our little guilt fix up here and we're going to do a little help and then we're going to split once it gets weird. You know what I mean? Yes. 
Hey. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you think? Do you think uh, me uh, making friends with a man that everyone on the street called suicide because he was crazy, and they said he could, just uh, messing with him was the equivalent of committing suicide? Uh, you know, that was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But you know, once you get past the smell, once you get past the anger. And you see that there is a beating heart in there that was created by God to be equal to us. And you see that through love, they begin softening. They begin cleaning up. You know, you, you, you show them the way. Some of these people are so mentally and psychologically damaged that the only thing that can give them hope is to show them the love of Christ and, and not to give up on them. Hmm. And, and Denver used to call Debbie his stubborn angel because she never gave up on him. She saw a human being in there that was worth saving. Not just him, but many, many others in the mission. Uh, he just happened to be the most difficult and interesting one, because I believe that God sent him to be an angel. To uh, he's the one that God chose to encourage us through the 19 months of the darkest days of our lives until God took her home uh, from cancer. But uh, you know, people are people that God created. And the only way you find out is if you're willing to sit down and have a conversation with them and find out, you know, we Denver used to tell me when I would walk the streets with him in the beginning and, and thinking the same things that you were talking about right now, they smell so bad, they're so drunk, they're just drugged out, they're crazy. But he told me, he said, he, we were standing on the middle of Main Street in Fort Worth, Texas. And he said, what do you see down at the end of the street down there? And I said, well, I see the courthouse. And he said, exactly. He said, let me tell you something. That courthouse is full of judges, and God ain't looking for no more of them. He said, if you're going to walk the streets with me, God is looking for servants. And that's all you're called to do is serve and not judge. And so, you know, we got to get past the judgment to be able to serve. And, uh, you know, you just you just... Uh, he used to tell me, he said, uh, you never know whose eyes God is watching you out of, and it ain't going to be your preacher or your Sunday school teacher. It might just be a fellow that looks like me. He said, now it ain't me, but it might be a fellow that looks like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. So uh, <laughs> That's good. Again, on the line here with uh, Ron Hall. Ron, why was Denver homeless? Well, Denver was homeless by choice, but his choice was that he had never given a, been given the opportunity to go to school. He grew up on a plantation that I called a modern-day slave because he worked for the man and just got credit at the store, and he lived just in a, in a shack on a plantation in Louisiana. And, uh, and he escaped the plantation with no money. He ended up in prison for trying to rob a city bus. Um, he, when he got out of prison, you know, he, had a, he was a felon with a record. Uh, he... he got into his addictions of uh, mainly alcohol, but some drugs. And uh, with no education and no hope, you just realize that your lot in life is to be a homeless man, and you choose the, the most comfortable place you can find, and his was the hobo jungle and the dumpster right near there. And uh, so he lived with no hope for ages until my late wife had the dream and saw his face in the dream and realized that God had a calling on his life. But, uh, you know, he he didn't, uh, you know, you just can't, at a certain age in life, you know, when you're psychologically damaged from, uh, for one thing here, is he had been roped and dragged by the Ku Klux Klan when he was 16 years old for helping a white woman change a flat tire on the plantation. 
And that the Klan made him vow he would never again uh, speak to a white woman or look a white person in the eye. That that's psychologically damaging to people. Yeah, a little bit. And uh, and so he nearly died from that dragging. And he just he never again spoke to a white person. So how are you going to go get a job when you're so psychologically damaged like sure, that? Sure, sure. So it takes but it takes love to make a difference. Okay, you have had two. Well, you've had probably more than two, but I want to talk about two great losses in your life. Of course, your wife, Debbie, dying in November of 2000, and then Denver, uh, the man we've just been speaking about, passed away in 2012. Yes. Um, I'm not even sure what the question is here, other than this is some serious loss for you, and I'm always curious as to what people do with their God when they suffer these kind of losses. And, and I don't know, you strike me as the kind of guy who's going to be all positive about it and, you know, praise the Lord anyway kind of stuff. But I'd be ticked off, man. Well, I didn't, I didn't speak to God or pray or read the Bible or anything for a couple of years after Debbie died because I just couldn't understand how God could take someone like that. Then, then my friend Denver, he moved in with me, was living with me, uh, this crazy homeless man who turned out not to be so crazy, turned out to be the wisest man that I'd ever known. And he began to, to tell me, he said, you know, God had a bigger purpose for Miss Debbie, and we need to celebrate that. He said, we need to pick up her torch, and we need to carry it around for the homeless, because, you know, Miss Debbie was going to make a difference, and now that's, that job is left up to us. So uh, we began carrying her torch and raising money for the homeless and speaking and trying to make a difference in lives. You know, so many people, you know, the, the best thing you can do if you really feel touched, you know, our film... It's such an important film with such an important message for our country about about the fact that it's not the color of our skin that divides us, it's the condition of our hearts. Mm. And uh, and if we could just get our hearts right. But it's so important that people see this film this weekend because Hollywood fought us to keep this film out of the theaters. Hollywood does not want uh, uh, films of, of racial reconciliation, of hope, of God, of these uh, God stories. And uh, especially how a, a black homeless man saves uh, a white family, saves a marriage, saves my relationship with my father. You know, these are these are stories of hope that encourage people. Hollywood just chooses to tear people down, destroy the world, and show the world the, the dark side of life. And you see something that's so bright right now with this story. Uh, we need we need people to show up at the theaters this weekend to support this because this is a story that gives hope for our countries and for all who sit there and see this film. Same kind of different as me, movie.com is where you want to go to find out where it's playing near you. Same kind of different as me, movie.com. We're on the line with Ron Hall. He is, of course, the author of the book, uh, named after, uh, let's see, the movie's named after the book. I got that figured out, Tim. I'm okay. I don't need any notes. (laughs) you need any help with wisdom, don't call Drew. Uh, Portrayed by Greg Kinnear in the same kind of different as me. What I want to know is, is there anything that Greg Kinnear did that imitated you actually so well that it kind of freaked you out a little bit? Well, he had an affair. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, Check, please. And he confessed it to his wife, and uh, it was the brutal, brutal battle uh, between the two of them that uh, it was so painful. I can't watch that scene in the film because it is so real. Okay, hold on. Ron, 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 I got to dive into this with you, man. The affair thing freaks me out 
because it's the, I don't know it's the ultimate relational conundrum and there's so many questions that come around behind it like for example why would she take your sorry butt back and then go the other way is it cool to actually take you back but with these sort of conditions like shouldn't if someone's going to really take you back are they they're going to say is it cool for them to go well I'll take you back but you got to do this 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 and this and this I mean I don't know there's something Sound, I don't know. It just feels weird about that. And then the third question I have, I'm going to pile these on you right now because I, I know you can handle them all. The third one is, when when your wife died, when Debbie died, I wonder how much it stung even more knowing how you had betrayed her. Yes. It was horrible. It was horrible. Um, yes. And I still will never get over it. And that was uh, 19 years ago. Uh, 17 years ago that she died, uh, it was 19 years ago, it was actually old more than, it was about 25 years ago that actually that, that happened. I'll never get over that forgiveness. That's the most powerful thing. You know, we know as Christians that we are forgiven, but until we actually have done something terrible to someone that we we loved here on earth and realize it in the flesh that we that we feel that forgiveness, that's the most powerful thing I've ever felt. And she didn't put any condition on me uh, except to be faithful. She said, if you will not do this again, I will never mention it again. And she threw my sin as far as the East is from the West. And she never mentioned it again until the last, well, the last day she was alive, when she, when she thanked me for being a good husband. And, and for, uh, the fact is that we put our marriage back together. I'm the one that made the promise. I will do anything that you ask me the rest of our lives together hmm. for that kind of forgiveness that you've shown me. And so I'm the one that did that. So, uh, yes, she she didn't do anything. It just happened to be a few years later that she said, would you, uh, I, would, I, want, I want you to go with me to this uh, homeless mission to find the man of my dream. And, hmm. And so that was really the first thing she had asked me to do, except be faithful. That's <laughs> so, yeah. so I went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so now we got to talk about Renee Zellweger. First of all, uh, the only kind of, I don't know, toot toot cool thing I've really ever done is I was part of the stunt team in a movie called Cinderella Man with Renee Zellweger and um, Russell Crowe. And uh, I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with them other than Russell Crowe almost pounding me three different times because I almost ran over him three different times on the set. Um, he didn't like that. You know, I don't know why. Well, but, you know, he's Australian. <laughs> yeah. Almost threw a sheep at his head. You know, just thought I'd throw that out there. Get it? Um, <laughs> that was bad. So, Renee playing your wife, I would imagine you'd be protective about about that role. More protective yes, than yes. Greg portraying you. Greg Kinnear portraying you, okay, fine. But but Renee playing your wife, you know, were, were you tempted? I don't know if they allowed you on set or they wanted you or invited you or whatever, but were you, were you like, oh, come on, you can't do that. My wife would never do this. or You're not really getting it or, I don't know, that kind of stuff? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. I was a writer and a, a producer on the set, and so I was there every day. And since we really didn't have videos of Debbie except a few Christmas things, opening Christmas presents or a birthday. Uh, no one knew her voice uh, like I did, except Renee was a good Texas girl, so she had kind of that same type of voice. So in the mornings, I would sit with uh, with Renee, and, and she would ask me, how would Debbie play this? What would Debbie think? And so she really wanted to know the character of Debbie. She talked to my children 
and and found out about Debbie from my children's point of view, and not only my point of view, but she talked to her friends. So uh, Renee studied her character very well, and uh, and she did a beautiful job of portraying it. So. Good and stuff. Fact, all the characters, you know, my father was not still alive. Uh, my friend Denver was not still alive, so I coached Jaiman Hansu on how uh, Denver would have played the part. I coached Greg on how to be an arrogant, self-centered art dealer. <laughs> and, uh, That's good. You could teach a master class in that, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, Jaiman Hansu, did I say it right? Jaiman. Jaiman. Rhymes with diamond. Yeah, okay. Drop the, drop the D and just call him Jaiman. Jaiman Hansu. There you go. Listen, I want to thank you, Ron, for writing the book. I want to thank you for working things out with your wife. I mean, that's the inspirational stuff for me. I want to thank you for taking the least of these, the outsiders, the smelly, stinky, weird people, and actually giving a holy grunt about them. As a guy who lived on the streets very briefly when I was young, I know that people didn't see me. I know it. I remember that invisibility. Yeah. 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 Ah, I don't like thinking about the, what, those uh, days. You know, my friend Denver told me, he said, sometimes you're successful folks, y'all can rise up so high trying to get yourself some more stuff that you don't take the time to get to know about God. He said, but you can never stoop too low to help somebody on the street hmm. and have God miss knowing about you. Same kind of different as me, movie.com. Go to that website, find out where it's playing, go watch it. This is an interesting and well-done flick. And, of course, anything with John Voight in it has my has my <laughs> signature on it. That guy is a legend in so many ways. Uh, listen, Ron, thank you very much for your time. I know you're just be, you've got to be media exhausted, so thank you, Ron. Well, I am, but, you know, this is a great message, and I just hope all your listeners will go to the theaters. As soon as your show is over, tell them to go show up at the theaters. We need their support this weekend to keep this story and keep hope alive for, for millions of people across the world. Good stuff. Ron Hall, author and, of course, portrayed by Greg Kinnear in the movie Same Kind of Different as Me in theaters now. Uh, Ron, thank you for your time, sir. All right. Thank you, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.